Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zetner Geology Podcast, episode 48. Baja BC interview with Godfather Merle Beck. Thanks for listening. Well, that's a mouthful. I don't know. Maybe I'll just call this episode Merle Beck. But um, this is an interview, a long interview with... uh, an important geologist here in the state of Washington. And this interview came about uh, kind of uh, spontaneously, uh, impulsively. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, I was doing the live streams from home, which you've heard about by now for sure. And by the way, in case I catch you here, uh, we're resuming the live streams this coming Wednesday, Wednesday, September 9th, 2020, at 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. And I've decided to do 26 brand new live streams with a theme this time, this fall, exotic terrains. But anyway, uh, I was doing the live streams last spring, and I did one on paleomagnetism, and got a little message from Merle Beck. I think it was through Facebook, actually. And Merle is a fellow that uh, is in his late 80s by now. He lives in Bellingham, Washington, where he's lived for the last 50-plus years. And I had been talking about Merle on some of those live streams involving Mount Stewart and exotic terrains and this concept called Baja B.C., And if you're unfamiliar with the concept, uh, I don't know. I guess I won't do a whole lot of background on it right now because I want to get to this interview. But perhaps you've listened to enough of these podcast episodes here, this audio stuff, that you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, I kept hearing from Merle just a little bit here, just a little bit there. And I can't really remember. But a few weeks ago, I thought, you know what? Damn it. It's summer. I got this car uh, I'm going to ask if Merle's up for an interview. Now that I, I guess, I guess what clinched it was I, I ordered some new wireless, uh, wireless microphones or wireless microphones. <laughs> anyway, I emailed Merle. I said, hey, Merle, we did that interview with you for a PBS episode, and you were so great on camera, and we only used, like, I don't know what it was, 12 seconds of you or something. Uh, it's always bugged me that we haven't done more with you uh, or that we didn't use more of the interview with you. We drove all the way up to Bellingham a few years ago with this PBS film crew, and like I say, we just used a few seconds. And Merle said, sure. I said, well, are you okay if I come over? Like, uh, can I meet you in your backyard? And I'll, I'll promise to wear a... Oh, Bijou's, Bijou's getting fed. Automatic feeder down here in the uh, the litter box, a.k.a. the uh, podcast recording studio. Glamorous down here in the basement, me and the cat. I said, Merle, is it okay if I come over? You know, I'll wear a mask. And uh, he said, no, that's fine. You know, I'll meet you at 11 o'clock. I think it was a Sunday. I just drove up and um, appointed time, met him in the backyard, uh, he was fine. We had open air. We were sitting six feet apart, whatever. We didn't even have masks on. He he had some beers on ice, uh, even though it was like 11 in the morning. <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was a pleasant hour. And what you're about to hear with this interview is pretty much Merle, um, without any editing, 
uh, very little. And um, as soon as we were done, uh, I think he was kind of maxed out. And uh, it was a hot sun, I think. And I wanted to get out of his hair so he could go in and rest. And um, with it, within a few days, um, posted it on uh, my YouTube channel. And, and here we are. So a few of you uh, suggested that I do the audio version. So does this exist in, in video form? Yes, it does. Why bother doing it in audio form? Well, I think I learned my lesson before. I don't know if it's that crucial to do live streams stripped down to just the audio and posting here. But in the case of these interviews, I, th I think it does work, or I hope it does work. And the only um, wincing I will do with this one as you listen is that the microphones were acting up just a little bit. I was brand new to using those microphones. But I hope you can kind of ignore that the best you can. I don't do well with that, by the way. I lock into stuff like that, as you probably know by now. But maybe you're more forgiving than I am and able to listen to Merle's words and the last thing I'll say before we get to the interview is I've done two more interviews since then, um, just kind of organically with names that have come up um, that, and the interview, Merle's interview has been kind of, I think, shared among some geologists, and so there's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of uh, talk of, of this interview, and, and people are like, yeah, we really should like revisit Baja BC, and maybe we should have a new session. And so this little interview with Merle is, is perhaps going to ripple things a little bit among the geological community to A, remind people who Merle is, B, get Baja BC back in people's minds, at least a few and also set up these exotic terrain live streams that I have planned uh, all fall, Wednesday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., from early September through early December. Okay, that's almost a seven-minute introduction, more than I wanted to do, but go ahead and enjoy, please, my visit up to Bellingham, Washington, to visit with Merle Beck, and I don't think I'll come back after this. I think I close it uh, in the in the actual program. So a little premature here, but I love you. Thanks for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoy Merle Beck. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Western Washington University here in Bellingham, Washington, almost to the Canadian border. We're here to visit with pioneering geologist Merle Beck, the father of Baja BC. I get asked regularly, are there any modern day equivalents to J. Harlan Bretz, someone who has spent his whole career putting evidence together and not many people believing him? My answer is Merle Beck. Let's go to his backyard here in Bellingham, see what Merle's got to say. For those unfamiliar with the concept, granitic rock from Mount Stewart in the Stewart Range was studied very carefully by Merle and his graduate student, Linda. And they published a paper in 1972 proposing that this whole mountain worth of granite formed down in Baja, Mexico, and was moved almost 2,000 miles to get up to central Washington. 
long strike-slip faults between 85 and 55 million years ago, Baja BC. So therefore, it doesn't mean that we're just viewing central Washington differently. We're viewing much of the American West tectonically differently after that concept of Baja BC. Thanks for joining us. I think we need to go talk to Merle, don't you? Let's do it. Let's start with your arrival in Bellingham. What year did you arrive here at Western? 1969. And were you brought in to do some specific things for the department, or did that evolve kind of over the years? I was brought in to set up a geophysics um, subdivision of the, uh -huh. of the program. Uh -huh. And uh, it did evolve. I into a much bigger thing than I thought it would be sure. because of the paleomagnetism aspect. Which was on your brain as soon as you hit town here in Bellingham? Oh, had been for years. Well, that's what I'm curious about. How did you get into the paleomagnetic world? Who trained you and what kind of rocks were you working with initially? Uh, I have a log and checkered career. Uh -huh. This might take a little while. But... <laughs> okay, I got time. Okay, so I... Uh, Started college at Caltech to be a physicist, ended up getting an economics degree from Stanford, mm -hmm. was drafted. Okay. While I was in the Army over in Germany, I uh, decided I, I really did want to be a geologist. My whole family on my mother's side was from Cripple Creek, and they were mining people, and so I'd always heard about geology. Sure. So I, I got back into Stanford as a graduate student in, in, uh, in geology. What year are we talking now? Uh, that would have been 57. Okay. And I took a course from a man named George Thompson, who was a very great teacher. And, and one of the things he talked about was the beginning of this new, this new wrinkle that was called paleomagnetism. And I thought it sounded really neat. So I did my master's thesis in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I went to work for an oil company for a year, and then fortunately I was hired by the U.S. Geological Survey to run what they called a rock magnetism lab in Washington, D.C. Hmm. And I worked for them for five years running this lab, doing field work, doing, you know, what we called pole position paleomagnetism. Sure. Measure the rocks, find out what the direction is. And which rocks were those? Where? Oh, it was mainly in the Appalachians, okay. and also in the Great Lakes area, the Keweenaw basalts, okay. and, and the and the Duluth Gabbro. Oh, wow! Okay. Duluth Gabbro ended up being my PhD thesis. Okay. Anyway, I worked for them for five years, and I frankly hated it in in, in BC, DC. Uh huh. And I wanted to get back west. Sure. And they wouldn't transfer me. And the people that got transferred could do so by threatening to go to work for a college. And I couldn't do that because I didn't have a PhD. Uh -huh. So I applied at UC Riverside for a PhD program. And the reason I chose that was largely because my, mother, my father had just died. My mother lived within commuting distance. I had a wife and three kids, sure. you know. So they accepted me, and I, I finished my Ph.D. really quickly and came up here. My Ph.D. was, as I say, the Duluth Gabbro, yeah. which I done the field work while I was working for the survey. When I got here, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and so I quick wrote an NSF proposal and got 
laboratory equipment and started working. Okay. Well, um, during your undergrad, your master's, and your PhD, we're in the 1950s through the 1960s, off and on then. How much is plate tectonics part of the discussion? Can you, can you characterize how the paleomag work was intersecting with tectonics, if at all? Oh my God, it was very important. Uh, as you're no doubt aware, and your listeners are probably aware, sure. the main evidence for uh, plate motion, the original stuff, was the Vine and Matthews uh, magnetic anomaly strips. Uh, but that involved magnetism, and it involved uh, uh, reversals of the Earth's magnetic field. Well, at the same time, in England, mainly in England, uh, people were working on what pole position paleomagnetism. And they would work out where the pole was with reference to Europe and, and say, the early tertiary and the Cretaceous and the Jurassic and so forth. And the same thing was going on in North America. Okay. And if the plates had, if North America and Europe had not moved with respect to one another, those polar wander curves should have substantially coincided. But they didn't. They were obviously displaced. Uh -huh. And in such a way as to, as to second the notion that North America and Europe had been sliding apart. And uh, that was exciting, and lots of people started doing paleomagnetism then. And they discovered that it was true of all the you know, blocks. You know. Australia had its own, own curve that did not match with India, mm -hmm. and India didn't match with, with uh, uh, Central Asia, and, mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. And it became clear from this lack of coincidence of paleomagnetic poles that the continents carrying the rocks on them had moved with respect to one another. And it became really hard not to believe in, in, in continental drift, as we called it then. Sure. Uh, plate tectonics now. It really became hard not to believe that. Some people managed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Merle Beck and Linda Nosen, January 1972. We're coming up on 50 years. Jesus, is it that long? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, uh, Lord, you're right. <laughs> Anomalous... Paleo latitudes in Cretaceous granitic rocks. We describe anomalously low paleomagnetic inclinations in radiometrically dated batholithic rocks exposed in the Cascade Range of central Washington. Our results suggest that these rocks originated roughly 25 degrees further from the Cretaceous pole than their present location. A simple application of plate tectonics based on existing models can tentatively account for our results. Alternative explanations seem unlikely. <laughs> I like that last sentence. Yeah, and I stuck with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the context of that paper? Were, okay. you, were you adding to somebody's idea already, or were you coming out of the blue? No, I was adding to an idea that I had I had, had originally originated in my brain some years earlier. Okay. And it, but I was also basing it on some results that other people had had, essentially at that same time. Okay. And the 
context is when I was at UC Riverside, I, I had already, you know, I actually had more publications than a lot of the faculty. And I had a friend there who wanted to do paleomagnetism. And I had a functional lab going in Washington, D.C. So he and I studied the paleomagnetism of granitic rocks, which we called the Southern California batholith. Okay. Now I think they call it the Peninsula Range Basilisk. Yeah, give us a couple examples. Where 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 could you find those rocks that you were looking uh, near at? Near San Diego and on the, well, we didn't go into Mexico, but okay. northern Mexico, around actually around Riverside, San Bernardino. Okay. Wherever there's uh, granitic rocks exposed in the mountain range, that's, that's, that's that pathway. Got it. And we did a pretty thorough study. And Ron, actually Ron went and made the measurements at another guy's lab. Ron was my student, mm -hmm. my fellow student. Sure. <coughs> and we got a really nice paleomagnetic direction, but it didn't match the reference pole. And the way it looked at, looked at it, it looked like it had been, these rocks had originated south of where they are now and had rotated clockwise. And so Ron and I puzzled over that. And at about that same time, there was a very seminal paper published in the GSA Bulletin by Tanya Atwater, of whom you've no doubt heard. Yep. And she likened Western North America, when she really got waving her arms, <laughs> she likened Western North America to a huge dextral sear zone. And so Rod and I sit there and say, well, what happens if our little chunk of batholith is stuck in the sear zone? Mm -hmm. And so the answer, of course, is, with respect to the inter internal part of the continent, outside the shear zone, those rocks will have seemed to have been moved north and rotated clockwise. But we didn't publish that. Okay. It was too revolutionary. That was in the mid-1960s, maybe? That would have been 67, 68. Okay. So then I came up here and I got in my lab and I ratted around trying to find good places to work. Yeah. And with, uh, I got a bunch of grad students, and one of them was this <coughs> very nice and an intelligent woman named Linda Lawrence, who later married and became Nosen. Okay. And Linda and I worked on the, I mean, my God, what what uh, granitic rocks are there around here better than the <laughs> than the Mount Stewart batholith? You can drive right through parts of it. You can go up Icicle Creek. Yeah. And. Uh, so we went up there and we sampled in a, I don't know, eight, nine, ten places and drilled standard paleomagnetic sites, six, eight, ten cores per site, and brought them down here. And she worked in my new lab and she got a beautiful direction. And lo and behold, it looked like these rocks had moved north with respect to North America and rotated clockwise. And I said, my God, that's what Tessera and I found. At that point, I started thinking there was something really seriously going on here. This, this kind of application of paleomagnetism to tectonics was pretty much unheard of. It was ignored by most geologists, but I think the paleomagnetic community took notice. Uh, now, a decade earlier, the paleomagnetic stuff of, of Vine and Matthews was celebrated, right? So, 
there was some acceptance of paleo mag, but yet this was somehow different? It was quite different in that the Vinan Matthews hypothesis was based just on the notion that the magnetic field had changed direction, polarity. Yeah. We were talking about the, the <laughs> changes in the direction of the magnetism locked in rocks, yeah. and it's quite different. Yeah, yeah. They, what they were talking about was simple. Mm -hmm. We were talking about something that was had a lot more um, oomph to it somehow. So anyway, uh, yeah, I think a whole lot of paleomagnetists thought that was really pretty interesting. And at the same time, there had been two other papers published that also didn't get too much uh, publicity. One of them was by Ted Irving and some people. Ted Irving is probably one of the absolute fathers of paleomagnetism. Mm -hmm. He died a few years ago. He, he was an Englishman, worked at, uh, in, on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. And Ted had found that there was some really strange results in Cretaceous rocks on Vancouver Island. He was working with uh, paleomagnetically not particularly nice sedimentary rocks. Yeah complicated things and, and we didn't have the laboratory facilities in those days to, to, to measure a sure. whole lot of things. But Ted's conclusion was it looked like things had moved with respect to the inside of the continent. Right. At the same time, a guy named Packer, was it Packer? Yeah. And some graduate students up in Alaska had found some, some volcanic rocks that looked like they had got magnetized way south of where they were now. And these three things came out at the same time, mine first and the next two. Yeah. I started saying, hey man, there's something here. <laughs> so I dug into the literature. And the result of that was the American Journal of Science paper, which I don't know whether you've seen it, mm -hmm. but that's the one that really, where the stuff hit the fan. Because I, because the ge all the geologists read it for one thing. Okay. And a whole lot of them didn't want to believe it. Is it this or something else? In the early no, 80s? no, no, no. Oh no, this this comes. Oh, this one is from uh, a, a, a a Mexican journal. <laughs> no, you want to look at okay. the American Journal of Science. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll get you the. Okay. Good. I'll get you the reference. So that's the one that broke it to a wider audience, not just the much wider audience. Okay. And and what. Okay, so you get a wider audience. So, in what form are you getting pushback? Uh, it's really quite interesting. Pre to my my way of thinking, most of the geophysical community, especially the ones who did paleomagnetism, knew how it worked and could read and understand what I had done in depth, agreed that what I had said was not only true, but that my interpretations were, you know, substantially correct. Right. The gray eminences in the geological community <laughs> uh, just absolutely abhorred the idea. And I'll give you two examples. One was, uh, for the local stuff, there was a guy named Peter Misch, whom you may have heard of, sure. who absolutely dominated uh, the geology department at Uni University of Washington. And he, he was totally revolted by my ideas and 
and uh, was quite skeptic, scornful of mm -hmm. my, what I said, and, mm -hmm. but not normally to my face, mainly behind <laughs> my back. So he was the local opposition, but the, the main opposition was Bill Dickinson. And now, this is my opinion, yep. and a lot of people would disagree with this. But I think that what happened with Bill, Bill was brilliant. He was a great stratigrapher, and he had a good grasp of how the early ideas about play, you know, uh, play tectonics worked. Sure. And Bill had been at Stanford, and Bill had worked on a model for how the West Coast developed tectonically. And he finished the model, and he was, oh, I've done it, nothing more to do. So he moved to Arizona and started working on other things. <laughs> well then, myself and, and Ted Irving and other paleomagnetists came along. Bill's idea basically was plate motions were orthogonal. They're like this or like that or they're like that. Mm -hmm. And he had never really considered the notion of, of oblique oblique uh, extension and oblique compression. Mm -hmm. And he had also didn't know anything about the Kula plate. Yeah. He should have because Tanya Water had already mm. said that it, you know, shown that it existed. But, well, nobody knew where it was a hundred million years ago, or even that it existed at that time. So anyway, Bill, frankly, didn't want his model to be disturbed. And so when I came out with the stuff, he, he uh, was vehemently opposed, which let me interject right now Please. before I forget to do it. I did not mention, I did not name Baja DC. I was going to ask. Yeah. It was Ted Irvin. It was. Yeah. And I actually never really bought into it because <laughs> his idea was the whole thing moved as one big chunk. Okay. And I thought that things moved in separate littler chunks. But the same, it was the same thing. South to north motion and, rep, and clockwise rotation. So when you hear you're the father of Baja BC, you kind of wince just slightly because it's not quite the concept that you were. I actually argued with Ted after he, he brought that out, but he was such a, yeah. a articulate guy. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you, you don't argue with Ted. <laughs> Well, it was catchy, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it grabs people's attention, of course, more than some other kind of more vague way to describe yeah. the, the translation. And I'd say, but Ted, the differences between the various units are so great. And he'd say, we're just playing with it. We're just playing with it. <laughs> oh, what a guy. Well, so, let, yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, we had a real simple model. We would look at rocks from Baja BC and they would all their paleomagnetic direction would be displaced in such a way that their paleomagnetic poles would be over here with respect to the reference pole mm -hmm. and they'd all be over here and we had a real simple explanation for it they'd all moved in the same way if you want to account for these aberrant directions without this motion, you've got to invoke all kinds of things. Tilt here, and remagnetization there, and age problems there, and, and flattening of inclination here. 
And then you have to explain how all of them look like, came up with results that look like everything has moved in the same right, direction. Right. If a geologist says, if I say to a geologist, this piece of rock has moved up here with respect to that piece of rock, he's going to look for a fault. And we didn't have any really big faults. And there's lots of reasons for that. Partly because there weren't any really little big, really one big fault. There right. are a whole lot of little ones. Right, right, right. Partly a lot of it's been covered by uh, plateau basalts. Exactly. That kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so this is a rare opportunity for folks who like the idea, but they have immediate questions. Um, this is a great opportunity for them to hear from the, from the, the horse's mouth. One is, well, wait a minute. How can you say anything about the paleomagnetic history? Because there's been changes in the location of magnetic north, for instance. How can you factor in this wandering pole business? Is there a simple way to describe how you deal with that? I think, I'm not so sure how simple it is, but I can deal with it. Okay. Uh, when we say that the Mount Stewart batholith has a pole that's displaced from the reference pole, what we're saying is effectively this. Well, first of all, let me go back. Sure. Uh, yeah, the pole moves around, but it, the magnetic pole. Right. The magnetic pole has essentially always stuck close to the geographic pole. Mm -hmm. It precesses around it. Uh, and sometimes it's exactly there, but usually it's 5, 10, 15 degrees away. So if you were to look at just the magnetism of a single rock at a single moment and got, get the, and calculate a pole from that, it wouldn't be the geographic pole. Right. It would be a few degrees apart. Mm -hmm. But we don't do it that way. What we do is we average over a long time period. So the notion is that the magnetic pole wobbles more or less randomly around the geographic pole. Mm -hmm. And if we average all that, mm -hmm. we'll get essentially a, a pretty damn good uh, estimate of where the geographic pole was. So, okay, now we go to, we're mostly interested in, in sort of late, mid-Cretaceous rocks right. here. Uh, all through the central part of North America and into the Appalachians, people have done paleomagnetic studies of rocks of that age. And they've done it properly, averaged out the, we call that the secular variation, average that out and get a direction that should tell them where the pole was with respect to that rock. Mm -hmm. And they plot it on a map. And if you do it in Kansas and you do it in Louisiana and you do it in New Hampshire, you get the pretty much the same place. Yes. In fact, quite a tight grouping, which we, we call that the reference pole. Yeah. Okay, so now we know where, with respect to North America, the pole was. And so from that, we should be able to calculate what the magnetic direction should be in any place on the continent. Yeah. We call that the expected direction. So what I'm saying is that throughout the craton and the younger rocks in the Appalachians, the expected direction and the observed direction are almost the same. But on the west coast, they never are. Mm. And on the west coast, the way they're different 
is they have a shallower inclination and have seem to have been rotated clockwise. And that's exactly what you'd get if you had a block of rock that was stuck in a dextral shear zone being carried north with respect to North America and rotated clockwise. And that was, that's the story. And that's not the first time you've given that explanation because you've been trying to answer reactions for the last 50 years, essentially from geologists and non-geologists alike, right? That's, a, that's, a that's fun... entirely true. <laughs> it actually, uh, Nick, got kind of tiresome and, and led me to stop working in the Cordillera. I don't know whether you know that I, I spent 20 years working in, or 15 years working in the, the Andes. I did not know that. Yeah, and I also worked in the Caribbean and I worked in the Aegean. And each place I found, you know, different patterns. The Andes, the Andes of, of Chile and Peru are a really great example because there, if you can visualize, if we had a black chalkboard, I would draw it, but I can't. <laughs> can visualize, look at, look at a map of, of South America in your head and you can see that there's a that Peru comes down from northwest to southeast, and then, and then in Chile it's, it goes due south. Yep. And subducting into that wedge there is the Nazca Plate. Mm -hmm. And the Nazca Plate is affecting the, the crustal rocks, the coastal rocks, in both Peru and Chile. And we get a pattern, but it's not like the North, North American Cordillera. Mm -hmm. What we get, is in Peru, the rocks are rotated clockwise, but pretty much stayed in place. And in Chile, the rocks are rotated, I mean counterclockwise, yep. excuse me. Yep. And in Chile, they're rotated the other way. Okay. But they haven't moved. Why haven't they moved? They can't, haven't any place to go. You can't push them up into more continental crust. Yeah. And uh, so I thought that was an important important observation that North America and South America, even though they've undergone what they used to call Andean tectonics, have an entirely different paleomagnetic mm -hmm. signature. Interesting. And I believe that it's mainly you can just boil it down to the shape of the shape of the continental margin or the plate right. margin. So in part you left North America because it was getting tiresome. You felt like you'd you'd laid out some pretty impressive evidence and you, you get all this pushback, but is part of the reason you left to get more context for Western margin of the Americas? And it was almost There's another There's a bunch way of reasons. One reason is that everybody in their, and their uncle was working on Cordillera and rocks at that <laughs> yeah, time. Because yeah. we'd opened up, we and Ted, Ted yeah. and I, and, and Alan Cox down in Stanford uh -huh. had opened up the whole thing and so everybody was working there and there wasn't any rocks left for me to work on <laughs> and secondly uh i could get funding for south america sure. more easily than i could get funding for north america because i didn't have target rocks to work on and thirdly it was because i wanted to see whether the results from chile and peru sure. would match what we got up here i'm sure glad i went down there Good, good. Well, talking to you, especially you just mentioning that you left the Cordillera um, in North America after doing a bunch of work, 
brings to mind Jay Harlan Bretz, and I don't know if you're comfortable mentioning him in this conversation, but I've been doing a fair amount with Bretz and, and his rather intense work in the 1920s in eastern Washington, and then at some point he says, look, I, there's nothing more I can do. I've laid this all out. Uh, you're not going to come look at these places. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. just, I'll just, I'll just go back east and start looking at caves and stuff like that, and just kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, he spent the much of the rest of his life not being recognized for that important work. Are you wanting to go here at all with parallels? With no, not really. Okay. Brett's Brett's story is much more was much more pathetic, pathetic than mine. <laughs> I mean, nobody has ever said I was stupid and nobody and the community hasn't you know locked arms and and uh, expelled me Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of support over the years sometimes it's a little frustrating that people are so desperate to disprove what I've shown what I assume I've shown yes rather than go out and look for evidence as how it happened or why it happened or you know that sort of thing I was a little discouraged by the by the old uh, uh, zircon work. The early zircon work purported to show that all those all the rocks here had always been here, and and apparently now they don't. Now, they don't. now it shows the opposite. That there's a there's more and more good evidence lately that that uh, they're on board with mm-hmm. you. But uh, it, it it hurts. It almost hurts my feelings that people are so anxious to prove that what I said was wrong that they devote half their life to it. You know. Do you have pet ideas for why that is? Is this human nature? Is this some sort of uh, clannishness among scientists? I mean, we're supposed to think independently and not have all this baggage. But you know, you know, Nick. If I answer that question, I might end up insulting a bunch of people that I like to regard as friends. Right. Well, I'm guessing uh, folks that are watching uh, have learned on their own about Baja BC, and they're aware of some of these new developments in the last 10 years to, from many different points of view, the zircon now, the ammonite fossils, the, the, the new way to look at the Swakane Nice and see connections with Southern California. So. Mm-hmm. Are, is that message getting to you? Are, 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 you say you're not keeping up on the latest developments. Are you aware of this growing movement to find different ways of evidence that support your original work 50 years ago? Well, I'm vaguely aware of it, partly <laughs> through you. Okay. Uh, I have f- friends who are still working in the field. Yeah. Uh, there's a woman at Western named Elizabeth Shermer. She's a... G- Basically into tectonics. Mm-hmm. And I have a beer with her now and then, and she more or less tells me what's going on. Yeah. I see Ray, uh, Ray Wells every once in a while. Uh, but no, I people haven't really... I haven't made an effort to keep up, and I'll tell you why. And it... I mean, you may want to scrub this part, but... Well, we'll try it. My wife died of ovarian cancer nine years ago. At that time, I had had I was still doing a little bit of research, but not much. And that was such a cruel death that it made me want to do something about ovarian cancer research. Mm-hmm. And so I I started uh, 
volunteering at Fred Hutch down in Seattle. But the, the organization that I was volunteering, the program collapsed. And I started writing that blog that you know about. Yeah. And if I study anything at all now, it's ovarian cancer. Interesting. Uh, I'm still interested in, you know, I, I wish Ray Wills would come and sit on my deck and, mm -hmm. and tell me what he thinks now. Mm -hmm. the, the ideas of how this came about seem to have changed to somewhat from what I envisaged. Yeah. But the general result seems to be the same. Well, that's the amazing thing. We're 50 years later, and the evidence continues to pour in, as far as I can tell, all in support. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a growing tide. You should know about all that. Yeah. You don't. Well, I wish that some of the other guys that had revolved, involved in it were still alive. Alan Cox, of course, mm -hmm. died many years ago. And mm -hmm. Ted died just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Is that part of this at all? That might have been part of the problem. Uh, maybe get early on getting getting grant money. Yeah. But after I'd published a few papers and got to be everybody's favorite <laughs> kicking boy, uh, I had no trouble getting funded. Uh -huh. The reason I came here is I wanted to be on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. I got my PhD and I had there were only two. Okay, and I was going to go back to the USGS. But since I'd gone all, to all this trouble to get a PhD, yeah. I decided I'd try to teach someplace. Mm -hmm. And there were only two jobs at that time on the West Coast. One was at San Diego State, and one was here. And I interviewed in both places, and both places offered me jobs. And I chose this place because the teaching load was less, so I knew I'd have more time to do research. And there was the North Cascades right over there. <laughs> and if there's anything I love to do in then, and I would still be doing it if I could, yeah. is rat around in the mountains. Those mountains probably played as big a role as anything. So no, you know, I think at first, maybe people would say, well, hell, he's from some podunk place back out of nowhere. So who needs to pay any attention to him? But that didn't last long. Good. Yeah, and since then, I don't think it's been any problem. Mm -hmm. uh, you feeling okay? Want to do a couple more? Okay. Uh, back to the common reaction I get when I share your message, and you know, one is the polar wander thing. Another is, well, how about folding of the rocks? Or it's been a long time since 60 million years. How can you assume that those inclinations are the way they were when that? Magnetite frozen place. Yeah, right. Okay, that's that's one of the principal alternative explanations for these strange directions. As far as layered rocks that are folded, that's no problem because we can graphically unfold them. Mm -hmm. and we can rotate the direction to what they'd be if the rocks were flat. The main problem has been with with the batholithic rocks, the plutonic the uh, Peninsula Range Black this would be one. Yeah. Mount Stewart, obviously, and some other stuff that Ted Irving worked on in, in BC. With the batholithic rock, you have no evidence of the paleo-horizontal, so you have to infer whether or not it's been tilted. Well, that was true until not that long ago when some 
real smart guys back in Princeton, I can't remember their names now, developed a method of, of determining paleo, excuse me, mm -hmm. <coughs> paleobathymetry. So let's assume that the Stuart Batholith had been tilted. So it got magnetized and it got tilted and then it got planed off at the top here. Well, if you sampled it at the top, you would find that you'd find evidence of how deep that rock had formed. And if it had been tilted, it would show. It, part would appear to be sh shallower and part deeper. I'm garbling this, but no, no, you're good. hopefully you're, you're good. your wa watchers will understand. <laughs> they will. But these guys in, in uh, Princeton sampled all over the, the Stuart Batholith, and they got a uh, bathymetry that showed that it hadn't been tilted. Mm -hmm. And uh, the evidence for its tilt comes from some older rocks that are tilted can't remember the name of the formation. They're on the east side, I think. Mm. And, uh, but they're faulted against them. Yeah. So yeah. they don't actually apply. Mm -hmm. But that is one of the objections, is if you're going to deal with, deal with a rock that has been tilted, excuse me, if you're going to deal with a rock that has no evidence of paleo-horizontal, you always have to wrestle with the question of, is it still in place or has it been yeah. tilted in some direction? Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes out of the Cordier and uh, paleomagnetic work now after all these years is that if these batholiths are all tilted, they're all tilted in the same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're all tilted down to the, down to the southwest. Mm -hmm. And, and um, while that's not impossible, it seems unlikely. It sure does. But with the other rocks, the, uh, which Ted worked on a lot, the layered rocks, as I recall, they have evidence of bedding, and so you can just correct for that. That's pretty routine yeah. in paleomagnetic. Yeah. I don't think anybody's doing that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, my God, every likely outcrop on the west coast has got drill holes in it by now. <laughs> well this one somehow managed to escape your drill holes. I don't know how we figured that one out but uh, it's a beautiful chunk of rock. Looks like an old friend of yours. Mm -hmm. I had a few important people who didn't were enraged by what I was proposing. But I, I never, I didn't think I was ever treated badly or anything like that. I think people like Bretz and Wegener got a lot more opprobrium than I. I never got any opprobrium. Mm. Uh, you might try talking to uh, Ray Wells of the USGS. He's a younger guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ideas that I would like to say that I started have evolved. Yes. I started with, along with Tanya Outwater, mm -hmm. and Ray is probably the one who knows how they've evolved best of all. You might want to talk to him. I, I will. He just mm -hmm. retired. He did? Believe oh it or not. God. All these children retiring. 
Well, you brought up Tanya a couple of times, and she's obviously a very important figure in, in developing kind of Western North America tectonics, and that's an understatement. Uh, where was she with your work, or, or were you in different universes? She's the one that realized that, that this oblique behavior between first the, well, the Nazca, the uh, Farallon plate, and then, and, then the, and then the Pacific plate, would have the effect of, of making a big shear zone. Yeah. And that, that alone is enough of a, a contribution to geotectonics to put her in the National Academy, which is where she is. Yeah, yeah. maybe if they see this. I should probably not say this, but I would really like to be elected to the National Academy of Sciences. And I shouldn't have said that because that, that queers it right there. No, 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 no. But there are only a few paleomagnetists in there. One of them is Ted and he's dead. Mm -hmm. I think there's only one other and that's Neil Opdyke who was one of the founding fathers mm -hmm. in a sense. Well, he was more like me. Mm -hmm. He was a, what do they call it, an elderly nephew. Yeah. You did say that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, and Neil's still alive, but he, mm -hmm. he's older than me. He's mm -hmm. living in Florida and mm -hmm. trying to avoid coronavirus, I imagine. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I don't really need it. I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly content with life. But if, if anybody wants to elect me to the National Academy, I'd be, I would not say no. <laughs> what a joke. <laughs> Thanks everybody. Hope you enjoyed that visit with Merle. Gives you a little backstory on the Baja BC concept and the father of the whole thing, Merle Beck. Thanks for joining us. I love you. We'll look for you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>